So we got two more weeks to finish up our sermon series um, titled You're Only Human and Why That's a Good Thing. And in these last four weeks, we've been talking about um, Capic posing the question in his book, how do we live faithfully in light of our finitude and our human limitedness? And he says in the last chapter, you could easily say a hundred different things about living faithfully in this world, living in a way that seeks to glorify God and love your neighbors. But the four that he specifically chose were first, you embrace the rhythms and seasons of life and just seek to humbly keep in step um, with the rhythms and seasons that God has ordained and that you experience. And so two weeks ago, we looked at that. CC Shot, a member of our women's shepherding team, shared some of her story in light of that. And then second, last week, he said, you have to embrace your vulnerability and actually live honestly in light of it. And Ryan Stanley um, shared some of his story. Side note, I've never received more emails, texts, phone calls, and just comments when I bumped into people last week about how much that registered and triggered. Because for men, we know it's terrifying to actually lean into our vulnerability and weakness. And so this week, um, number three, as Capic says, in order to live faithfully um, in our finitude, we have to learn to express, lament, and cultivate gratitude. Nobody's sharing today, so spoiler alert. I I love getting people to share stories as much as possible, and we have communion, and we've been running long. Every week before we come out, we huddle up with the worship team. Eric goes through the flow. He always says, hey, if we finish after the sermon, we have have time, we'll do these two songs. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we'll absolutely have time. I love both those songs. And last week, um, his son, Jacob, I said, oh, yeah, we'll have time. He goes, no shot. (laughs) And he was right. We didn't have a shot. (laughs) So I am hoping to be shorter this week um, while we think about expressing lament and cultivating gratitude. Now let's start by defining terms very quickly. I think gratitude, hopefully we already kind of get that. It's a posture or state of thankfulness, of being grateful. Theologian G.K. Chesterton says, thanks are the highest form of thought and gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. In his book, Capic says, the Bible uses a cluster of words that relate to the idea of thankfulness. Rejoice, praise, joy, thanksgiving, gratitude and others. While each word could be distinguished from others, they are in the same theological and existential family. We rejoice and express gratitude, for it, remains, it reminds us that God is the giver of all good gifts and that we depend on him for life, breath, and our very existence. So hopefully we already understand and kind of get that. Lament, I think, is a little bit different. Lament's not a common term we use, and sadly, it's just not a common practice, even though it's a thoroughly biblical one. If you've been at Hope for a long time, you may remember the sermon series we did right before COVID hit was actually on lament. We rotate through kind of a New Testament gospel, an Old Testament book, a New Testament epistle, and a topical series is kind of our general way we work through the Bible. And we did a whole series on lament, and it was really eye-opening and good. But one of the things that came up during that series is just how unfamiliar and uncommon we are as the American church with the biblical invitation to lament. And so here's a little bit more thorough definition. And this comes from the book that we actually used during that lament series titled Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy by Mark Vrogop. And it is phenomenal. Side note, a part of God's kindness to me in bringing us to Hope was Hope was the first church. I'm not saying it's the only church. Don't hear that. It was the first church I had been to that really encouraged and even emphasized lament as a healthy part of the Christian life. One of the reasons why I was so turned off from the church, I think, in high school and in college 
was having experienced a lot of death and brokenness in my home, when I would come into Christian worship services or any campus um, ministry event, and it, it felt like it was a, you know, a cheer club, I, I, just, I couldn't relate. I didn't feel like there was a welcome space for my hurting and sad heart. And so lament, this is how Rogrop explains it. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament can be defined as a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. However, in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It's more than walking through the stages of grief. And this is the definition that he gives succinctly. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Throughout the scriptures, lament gives voice to the strong emotions that we believers feel because of suffering. It wrestles with the struggles that surface. Lament typically asks at least two questions. Where are you, God? And if you love me, why is this happening? He goes on to say, when brokenness becomes your life, lament helps you turn to God. It lifts your head and it turns your tear-filled eyes toward the only hope you have, God's grace. I hope that you're encouraged by this. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Hopefully that gives us a little bit of a helpful starting point for the two things that Capic is saying that we need to express and cultivate in our life. Now you may be surprised hearing those definitions that he puts them together. I think this is a part of his wisdom and brilliance because sadly there's often this tension in the church and the, even churches can be defined by this as, you know, one church that emphasizes kind of the celebratory victory, everything's good in the name of Jesus camp and we kind of shy away from sadness and suffering or we just camp out in the sadness and suffering and people feel like every time they visit, it's just like this mournful lament fest, like you're going to a funeral. Instead of what Capic says is the healthy biblical realism that highlights both. And it's hard. You know, there, there often is even divisions in the church over people that naturally gravitate to one or to, uh, to the other. People that are more comfortable sitting in the sadness and want to spend more time there in their grief. And then others, they, they feel the weightiness of the world and others who don't enjoy that. And so they want to get out of it as quickly as possible. And so I'll often hear in the church people that are really suffering and struggling say, yeah, I don't really like associating with so-and-so because it feels like, you know, their versions of praise is just like surface level and they're shallow, and they don't really want to go deep and acknowledge the valley of the shadow of death. But then people in the other camp will say, I don't quite get so-and-so. Like, where's their hope? Like, do they not trust in the resurrection? Like, what's going on? Why do they have no joy and actually faith that God can be at work in the midst of sadness? And so one of the things we need to think about with Catholic putting these together in a beautiful way is how much we need both. When Stephanie and I had Mary Rachel and found ourselves blindsided by suffering, to put it mildly, we experienced a lot of these tensions. Um, marriages with special needs kids have an 85 to 87% divorce rate. It's devastating, and there's lots of reasons why that could be the case, but I think one of the main reasons is because when you're really struggling, this doesn't just have to be with a, a kid that's struggling, but when you're struggling in general, the thing you want most is for people to be with you where you are. And so it can be hard when someone else is kind of walking their journey of grief and processing it the way they are and not where you are. And it can be extremely difficult to give the other person grace. And so for those of you, you know, that know me aren't going to be surprised. Like, like I, I land more in the place of lament. And 
oftentimes want to stay there for a long time, and I need other people to kind of pull me out of that dark valley. So we would go to these different meetings with doctors or therapists, and we'd come out of it. Stephanie and I would always end up in two different places where she would grab on to true things that the therapist or doctor or people said positively in kind of a hopeful, expectant, let's pray towards this, and I would grab on to the most negative outcome really as a fearful, self-protective way to not be disappointed and hurt later. And we would be really angry at each other. And in bad moments, you know, she would say to me is, you live hopeless and you're cynical and pessimistic. And I'd say, well, you're just being naive and optimistic and don't want to face reality. And not surprisingly, distance was, was growing in intimacy. Even if you say, well, which one was right? In some sense, the answer is both. And the other sense is it doesn't matter. There's not a black and white rightness to how we process grief. What we need in the church and in all of our relationships is to be gracious with one another. And you don't need me to tell you this. This is super, super hard to do. This is why the Bible in Ephesians 4, Paul says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called. With humility and gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. We, we have to be commanded to do these things because they're not natural, right? When we're hurting, we're grieving, or when we're celebrating to, to encounter people that are in a different place is hard for us um, to process. And so we need to be gracious. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. And in 1 Corinthians 11, right before Paul explains the body and blood of Jesus, he says that whenever you gather together, I hear that there are divisions among you. He actually starts chapter one of that same letter by saying, I'm getting reports that people say, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. He's like, what are you talking about? Christ isn't divided. There should not be these levels of division among us. So we need to, one, be aware of that and seek to be gracious with one another. And so a part of the reflection question I put in your bulletin that I want you to consider is, where do you naturally land? And I, it, it, that's a kind of a weird question to say, where do you naturally land with lament or gratitude? Because those are both healthy biblical practices. It's more of, do you land more in the, I just want to kind of celebrate and get away from sadness as soon as possible, or I like to camp out in heavy, sad places. Are you even aware of it? Like where, where you land? And just recognizing how important it is for us as a church to be a safe place for both. That, that, that we need to experience the range of healthy emotions, especially as God is trying to grow and mature us. One of the singer-songwriters that I feel like God has introduced me to that helps me with lament being a prayer and pain that actually leads to trust and doesn't just camp out in the sadness of despair is Andrew Peterson. And so I love a lot of his songs. And one in particular I love is called The Silence of God. And he's talking about the pain of when you're lamenting and you're hurting in the valley of the shadow. And he starts out by talking about how, much, how hard that is in his relationship vertically with God, and he doesn't know why. He says, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy ride and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart and when he has to remember what broke him apart. 
This yoke may be easy, but the burden is not when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. So two stanzas in a row of hopefully something we can all, if we're emotionally aware, relate to. Of Man, when I'm suffering and struggling and God's not showing up and saying, here's exactly why this is happening. Um, it's hard. It's painful. But then he goes to the horizontal and talks about how painful it is if you're in a Christian community that doesn't create space for lament. He says, and then if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to the cross, what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. And so we really, especially I think as a, as a wealthy, successful South Charlotte church, want to actually lean into lament as a super healthy biblical practice. Not only lament, but leaning into lament because we believe that giving voice and words to our confusion and our hurt and our pain while trusting God's promises can really grow and mature us and lead us to a place of hope. And we see this, you know, obviously most clearly in Jesus, our Savior. We see the picture of the only perfectly emotionally healthy person who ever lived. And if we ask, what did that look like? Well, Paul says in Romans 12 that we should let love be genuine. And one of the ways he describes love being genuine, he says, you are to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And okay, exactly, Jesus clearly checked all those boxes. But then what did it look like relationally? It said that for love to be genuine, you rejoice with those that rejoice and you weep with those who weep. So what other people are experiencing, good and bad, emotionally, carries weight for and other people should be invited into that in your life when you go through it. So we see in the Gospels eyewitness accounts of Jesus throughout his life, referred to as a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering, would enter in deeply with people's sadness. When his friend Lazarus died, he knew for a fact he was going to raise him from the dead, carrying out his arguably greatest miracle besides his own resurrection. And he still wept and wailed and lamented and grieved deeply so much so that people said, look how much he loved him. And then he rose, called Lazarus to rise from the dead. But he didn't only do that. D Jesus didn't only show up at death or in funerals. He also celebrated and partied so much, not only turning water into wine, but having feast, that other people looked at him and said, that guy's a drunkard. Matthew 11, verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say about him, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so the point there is to realize that God who saved us is committed to completing the good work that he's begun. And this is what it looks like. He's committed to growing us and maturing us and making us emotionally healthy. So we must fight against the pressure to just go to one extreme or the other. Capic says it this way, despite pressure from both outside and within the church, lament and thanksgiving are not in a contest. The Bible calls us to both. When we engage both lament and gratitude, each becomes stronger and truer. Now to the key point. Lament and gratitude are mere concepts that highlight the same fundamental truth. We are dependent on the God who rescues us. Only when we accept our creaturely finitude will this make sense to us. God created in us such an intricate web of emotional response that we can experience complexity so rich they seem beyond all possibility. But don't miss the beauty. 
Lament and gratitude not only recognize our dependence on God, they also deepen our sense of his faithfulness. So they both have the same end goal, to bring glory to God and to produce much good in our lives. I love the way Pete Scarzero in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, highlights that for us to be emotionally healthy, we have to be able to do both of these things. And we get this because each and every one of us, until we meet Jesus, is going to live in a broken and fallen world where there's always going to be reasons to lament if we're aware at all of what's going on. But in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and we have promises that he's never going to leave us or forsake us. And so for us to be emotionally healthy, we got to be able to live in this tension of both of these things. And Scarzero says, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. To feel is to be human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be image bearers of God. To the degree that we are unable to express our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God, others, and ourselves well. Why? Because our feelings are a component of what it means to be made in the image of God. To cut them out of our spirituality is to slice off an essential part of our humanity. And so I, I hope, in a sense, that that feels like an invitation, right? Even if you're like, gosh, I, I tend to feel comfortable in this camp over here and this camp over here. I hope that maybe that feels like an invitation to you of, I really do want to be emotionally healthy. I really do want to know how to live more with an awareness of what I'm feeling and to actually bring what I'm feeling into the light. And so I want us to look at a passage that I think highlights this picture of biblical realism so well. And this comes from Lamentations chapter 3, and it's printed in your bulletin. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Lamentations, you may at least notice the term lament is a part of the root word for that book, that it is a book of laments, five chapters, 22 verses, 110 total, and easily 100 of those verses are sad and heavy and hard. But the most well-known that we use often is in verses, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, this was written in 587 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And the prophet Jeremiah, we believe, is the author of this book. And overwhelmingly, he's writing an eyewitness account of the absolute horrific devastation but as an American church, we don't really want to hear that. And so Capic even talks about going to a Christian retreat center and walking in to this um, cabin. And there's this beautiful Thomas Kincaid painting of this cozy little cottage in the mountains, smoke coming out of the chimney. It's like picturesque. You think this is like a, an ideal place for an introvert to go away and like read or write. And under this picture is that Verse, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Amen. Yes, that's what I think of. He says well, the reality is that verse is spoken and declared more um, accurately in the midst of what we see on the news about Russia bombing these Ukrainian cities of death and devastation and destruction everywhere. That that's what was going on. And, and if you actually read the whole book of Lamentations, you see that that 95% of what Jeremiah is talking about is absolute destruction and darkness and despair and devastation. So I printed just a little bit bigger context of the passage that I just read. 
And so just starting in verse 17, Jeremiah declares, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. I say to myself, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so what you really have is the image of of this weeping prophet sitting in these war-torn streets of utter devastation, thinking and reflecting on the reality that he's currently experiencing and not minimizing it in any way, but sitting in it while also anchoring his heart into the truths he knows about God. And so Vrogrop says, there are patterns of biblical laments, and they generally follow this kind of pattern as God takes us on a journey of grief. First, it begins with an address to God. And this is super important, and we can miss this by skipping over. One of the ways to know that I'm actually lamenting, that I'm, I'm beginning to experience a prayer and pain that's going to lead to trust versus just complaining and attacking is I actually turn to God. A part of what I want to ask you is that do you have a relationship with God that is secure enough you can be honest? You can bring your legitimate concerns and anger and confusion and fear. Newsflash, he can handle it. That a part of being in a real relationship is you got to have the safety and security to be able to be honest. I know you already know that in theory, but I think for some people it can almost feel like, wait, this is sacrilegious if I really, you know, bring all my complaints and confusion and anger to God. He really can handle it. He is our wonderful counselor. So to bring our address to God... And to be honest, to make an honest complaint or concern, followed by a courageous request of wanting the Lord to do something in light of this situation, and then to express trust or praise, even if you feel like 99% of me doesn't really believe it. I'm fighting like crazy to believe, great is thy faithfulness. And then finally, arguably the hardest part of the whole process is to wait and to be patient. Now, of course... The clearest biblical picture we see of this is our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, Jesus tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then he goes a little farther and he falls on his face and he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of wrath pass away from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Like seeing Jesus do this for us, express all of these things, invites our heart to follow and to trust and to do it, especially the last step, which is to wait and be patient. I think this, in my opinion, is the hardest thing for us to do. And the reason that I think it is the hardest for us to do is, one, because it feels like a waste. It feels like I'm not doing anything, which is the actual point. God is doing something. Um, two, it's hard for us because, in, in a sense, I think we have cursed with resources that enable us to get out of waiting. We can usually change our circumstances to avoid the uncomfortableness of having to wait and trust and depend on God. Notice Jeremiah says this in the next few verses, verse 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him 
the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Vrograp says it's so difficult to wait because it feels like we're not doing anything, but that's the whole point. We're not doing anything, but God is. However, waiting is one of the greatest applications of the Christian faith. You are putting your trust in God, placing your hope in him, and expressing confidence that he is in control. Waiting puts us in an uncomfortable place when we're out of control of our lives. Now, again, no one likes waiting. No one likes feeling powerless. No one likes being uncomfortable, especially when you think, I have the resources and means to do something about it. But this is telling us it's actually good for us to have to wait and depend on the Lord. It's good for our kids. One of the primary ways this shows up, that we don't believe this, is how quickly when our kids experience any sort of uncomfortableness, we yank them out and put them somewhere else. They were in this sports league, someone was mean to them, put them over here. They were in this school, something happened, boom, put them over there. And I've met with, with multiple dads recently that have said, one of them even said to me, we would never admit it, but we're so driven by fear that, that we use our resources to just constantly move our kids around. All the time praying, Lord, mature and grow my son or my daughter, help them to have trust in you. The very next verse in Lamentation says, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Stephanie and I recently had dinner with a couple that just graduated college and moved to Charlotte and started helping with our youth. We had them over and we were just chatting. Hey, how are things going? Whatever. Let's talk about Clemson football. Hey, thanks for serving with the youth. How's it going? And the husband said to me, not in a critical way, just a clear observation. He said, I cannot believe how sheltered the kids of hope are. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't expect you to say that. And he was just like, oh, yeah. And I was like, well, tell me more about that. And he's like, well, you know, Hope is one of the first churches we've been to that is super welcoming and accommodating to people that are new to Christianity, that are church damaged. We have lots of non-Christians present in everything that we do. We have lots of conversions. But then there's like this huge reaction of, okay, now, like, boom, I've, I've become a Christian. Let's get over here and let's try to shelter our kids in every single way possible from anything hard. And again, it is unbelievably difficult when you have the ability and means and resources to alleviate your kids' struggle to not do it. But this says that it is good for us and good for our kids to struggle, to suffer, to have to go through having a hard time in class. Newsflash, any job they have, any neighborhood they live in, anybody who gets married, anybody who has kids, it's going to be hard. And so we are doing our kids and ourselves a disservice when we just immediately pull them out of any sort of struggle or suffering. This needs to be something that we are more, um, I think, aware of and praying about and processing and having conversations about as a church. It's good for a man or for a woman to bear up the yoke in their youth. One of the things that's crazy is you think about the book of Lamentations. One biblical scholar said, Lamentations was written to be prayed and sung during worship services. Well, that's a newsflash for us, isn't it? If we primarily sung hymns based on the book of Lamentations, I don't think we'd have a parking problem. <laughs> People will be like, peace, see ya. It shows, I think, how averse we are to even leaning into the emotions and the sadness. And this is two weeks in a row. I'm not trying to pick on guys at all. 
Last week, embracing vulnerability, we're like the, Conroy said, American men are allotted just as many tears as American women, but because our culture does not allow us to shed them, we die much sooner because the lake of grief inside of us has no outlet. Same is true here. We, men, we are terrified of lament. Our women are so much better at this. They are light years out front of us in, in giving voice to their confusion and their pain and their struggle and their anguish and bringing that to Jesus. As men, we are terrified. And as a result of being terrified of these emotions, a guy told me recently, and this was super courageous, he said it in front of his wife. He said, my entire life, I have been so scared of my emotions. He said, I've never thought about it necessarily, but I I can say that I've always viewed emotions as extremely dangerous. And, And because our emotions as a man can make us feel powerless, we do everything we can to run away from them. Larry Crabb, in his book, Men of Courage, God's Call to Move Beyond the Silence of Adam, says this, Like every man, I am silent, just like Adam was silent. Sometimes I stand dumbfounded in the face of my confusion. Tears frighten me because I don't know what to do with them. And so men disappear into their work, their hobbies, and their sports. Things less than relationship. Silence or disappearing becomes our best defense against fear. That is exactly where the problems lie. It is better, I wrongly think, to hide behind my silence. But silence is not golden, it is deadly. Adam's silence was lethal. Speaking is the gateway to relationship, and silence is the gatekeeper. When men are silent, they deny the existence and the goodness of God. And that thought troubles me. And I hope it troubles us too. Speaking is the gateway to relationship. That's why it's so significant that Jesus didn't just tell his disciples, I'll see you post-resurrection, bye. But he says, hey guys, I want you to come with me and come with me in the garden and stay awake and pray. And then he tells them, he gives them his emotions. My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Even though he knew from eternity past he was gonna come, take on flesh, die and rise again, he still cried out to his father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Man, we got to fight against the silence. I know it is overwhelmingly terrifying, but there's good news. God's grace can cover us in that place. We can proclaim, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. I don't have to fear any evil. And the more we come shoulder to shoulder with one another, we can begin to be a community of men and just a church that meant well that is able to offer prayers and pain that lead to trust. We can be used by God to actually put down roots of healing, not only in our church and in our families, but even in our community. I hope it gets you excited when I say that. It's okay to say amen. But because it's a beautiful, amazing, shalom, flourishing picture of what God is wanting to do. And he even wants to do it this morning. As we come to this table As we partake of the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. We remember, we trust, we draw near, we anchor our hope, and we wait. Waiting is the greatest application of the Christian faith, Rograp says. And so God actually finishes scripture in chapter 22 of Revelation three times reminding us, Behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. Surely I am coming soon so that our hearts can reply, 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. So we have a great opportunity today to come to the table, to partake of Jesus' body and blood. And if you're here and you're resting in Christ as your Savior to the best of your ability, no matter how bad you think you are at lament or gratitude, you're invited to come to this table. And if you're not, and you're not even sure what any of that means, and you're confused by the majority of words that are coming out of my mouth, hear this. We're glad you're here. Please keep coming, but do not come up here and partake. There's no benefit in faking it till you make it in a relationship with Jesus or a relationship with anybody else for that matter. It's our practice to come and receive the elements from the elders and then to go back and to hold them in your seats because we're packed up in here. Let's, for the sake of some organization, exit to the right of your rows. Each tray of um, juice and wine, the inner cluster is real wine. You'll have some prepackaged gluten-free elements and then the outer clusters are grape juice. And then take the elements, go back, hold it in your seat, and then we will partake together. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope of the gospel, your perfect life, death on the cross and glorious resurrection that invites us out of hiding and out of fear. Thank you that you're committed to the good work that you began in our hearts and lives as your children. And we do pray that you'll do a supernatural work even as we partake today of your body and your blood, that you'll grow us in our emotional health, our ability to, as Crab said, speaking is the gateway of relationship, to even give voice to the, the ways we rejoice and the ways that we weep and grieve. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the, as a wonderful counselor, um, you know all the emotions that we experience and that you're always with us. And so help us to be honest with you and with one another for your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name, amen.